Coming up, researchers jumped the first hurdle towards gene therapy for Down syndrome. The first step was just enormous um, because there was no way to correct a chromosome and now there is a way to correct a chromosome. And how massive open online courses, or MOOCs, are transforming how we learn. It struck me as being the tsunami that many of us anticipated was coming in higher education. Plus using endless waves to probe quantum systems. This is a Nature Podcast. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Each of us is born with 23 pairs of chromosomes. In each pair, there's one copy from mum and one from dad. But sometimes a mistake can happen in the cell division process. One parent contributes two copies of a chromosome instead of one, and the baby ends up with an extra copy. If it's chromosome 21, this overdose causes Down syndrome. It's characterised by cognitive disabilities and an increased risk of conditions like early-onset Alzheimer's and congenital heart disease. But what if you could turn the extra chromosome off? This is the same principle as gene therapy, which switches off faulty genes, but on a much bigger scale. Now a team based at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in the US think they've found a starting point. They've managed to use a single gene to silence the whole chromosome, and their technique is inspired by a natural process that happens in females. I called author Jean Lawrence to find out more. So in normal females there's two X chromosomes, and in males, there's an X and a Y. The Y chromosome lacks a lot of the genes on the X chromosome, so in order to sort of make the dosage of X chromosome genes similar in men and women, one of the X chromosomes in females is silenced. It's controlled and repressed in all the cells of the body by a gene called EXIST, X-I-S-T, How do you get that EXIST gene into the chromosome? The way we did it was by using um, what's called genome editing with zinc finger nucleases, which is a system that cuts the DNA at a specific site. We used the zinc finger nucleases designed to cut at a specific site on chromosome 21 that would then promote the integration of our EXIST transgene simply a gene that we're manipulating to put into the chromosome of choice. And presumably when this exist gene is in the chromosome and it becomes switched on, it silences the other genes on the chromosome. Yes, that's exactly right. And do these genes remain silenced forever or just a certain amount of time? They will remain silenced forever as long as exist is expressed, but also, importantly, they will remain silenced even if exist is not expressed once it induces all these changes. How did you then check that the silencing of this chromosome had an effect on the cells and how they behaved? We could directly compare the exact same cells expressing three copies of chromosome 21 and those in which we had sort of normalized the expression of chromosome 21 by inducing exist. And we chose two features to look at. One is we just asked, do the cells have a proliferative disadvantage if they're trisomic versus disomic? We found that in just within one week when we express 
exist and silence the chromosome, the cells grow significantly better. The second way is that we looked at the formation of neural progenitor cells. So these are cells that will give rise to different cells in the brain and nervous system. And we asked if we silence the chromosome, is there a difference in whether they form neuroprogenitor cells and, and how well they form them. And we found the the untreated, the trisomic cells could form neuroprogenitors, but they took substantially longer to do it. What that means is developmental delay in the formation of neuroprogenitors might result in fewer neural stem cells and neurons. How might this research help us better understand Down syndrome? So the first thing this does is it gives you a way to study the cell pathology, to identify it, like what is the difference between cells if they overexpress chromosome 21 genes or they don't. Um, Now, we've done this in uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells, so human iPS cells that were derived from fibroblasts of a Down syndrome patient. So one can take this system and study the effects of the extra chromosome 21 expression on all those different systems of the body that one could recapitulate in culture. Now, you've done all of this in a Petri dish. What would you say to people who are naturally going to wonder whether one day it might be possible to do the same in humans? Our longer-term hope is that what we've done here will spark multiple initiatives to work towards a new concept, which I would call chromosome therapy. The first step for any gene therapy is you have to correct the genetic defect. That's been done for a number of other diseases, but for Down syndrome, it was sort of outside the realm of possibility that you could do that even in a culture dish. So for Down syndrome to correct that genetic defect, that's the huge, big first step. Now, there's multiple other steps But the important thing is here that Down syndrome had the first step was just enormous um, because there was no way to correct a chromosome, and now there is a way to correct a chromosome. That was Jean Lawrence at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Coming up soon in the research highlights, how a laser can reveal if a red blood cell is in shape and male crickets that put on a show when fighting in front of their friends. But before that, in the 1830s, an engineer called John Scott Russell was trotting along a canal on horseback when the canal boat next to him came to a sudden stop. It created a wave of water. But the wave, instead of gradually falling apart as it went down the canal, kept its shape and kept going at the same speed. Russell followed it along the canal and later reproduced this endless wave in a tank at home. Today, these self-propagating waves are known as solitons and they're found in all kinds of places – water, light and even quantum systems. A team at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have used these waves as probes in a peculiar quantum system called a superfluid. These systems can be used as test beds for more useful things like superconductors, materials that conduct without any resistance at all. So it's handy to bounce a soliton into a system like this and see what happens. Superfluids and solitons. Are you ready? Here's team member Martin Svierlein. So solitons can be found wherever you have waves propagating. Now waves we know in many, many different 
systems in nature, uh, not only in water, but also, of course, in uh, quantum mechanical waves uh, that we create in superfluids. These are fluids that do not feel any friction, where the flow is completely frictionless, which is beautiful. So these weird super systems, the reason that everything is so super is that particles behave as waves. And, and so there we have it. We have another type of wave now, which is a quantum mechanical wave. And that also might allow to uh, form these solitonic waves, these solitary waves that propagate through our fluid. So not all quantum mechanical waves are solitons, but just as in water, some of these quantum mechanical waves are solitons too. Exactly right. So we're very excited that these these solitons are observed in our experiment and we can see them propagate without spreading. Tell me a bit more about this experiment that you've set up then. You've, you've got essentially a quantum system and you've got some solitons in it. Yeah, that's, that's right. So it's a bizarre form of matter. Uh, we study ultra-cold gases of atoms that is a million times colder than interstellar space this gas, and it's also a million times thinner than air, so it's an extremely dilute form of matter. The wonderful thing is that our atoms behave just like electrons in superconductors, so we can use them as model systems for such superconductors, and that's why people are very excited about our type of gas. When do the solitons come into this picture then? I mean, when do they get involved? Yeah, so actually, solitons were known in superfluids before, so there are other types of superfluids that are um, weakly interacting that we understand very well. And now we have our superfluid, and it turns out no one really understands how it behaves. And this is actually not just an academic question relevant to our uh, particular superfluid, but it means that we also don't understand what strongly interacting electrons would do in high-temperature superconductors that we would love to understand better in order to at some point actually have high-temperature superconductors. So these things could one day be probes to try and examine those kind of systems and make them work? Yeah, hopefully. Now, the punchline here is that these solitons were doing something quite surprising in, in your gas. Yes. So it turns out approximate theories were predicting some gentle motion of, of solitons in our superfluid but these theories, as I said, they couldn't be trusted because we knew the interactions are too strong. So then we launched our solitons in our superfluid and we saw, wow, they're actually much, much heavier than predicted by theory. In fact, 50 times heavier. And so we don't know yet why that is, but it's wonderful to have an experiment that tells us that's how nature does it. And now we have to figure out what's wrong with the theory. How can a wave be heavy? Is this just a measure of sort of how slowly they went through this stuff? That's a wonderful question, of course. So now what is the mass of the soliton of this wave? It really doesn't want to be accelerated. Uh, so it has a certain inertia, inertial mass associated with it, and that's what you can probe as you let it propagate in our system. And what does that tell you that you perhaps didn't know before about this quantum system that you're examining? So what we think is happening is that this soliton is very much filled by what we call quantum fluctuations. 
if we are honest, then this is just a way to say we don't quite know what's going on, but we call these things quantum fluctuations <laughs> because that's what makes the soliton uh, presumably heavier. It's other waves that are not part of the soliton really, but they're getting, so to speak, stuck in the soliton and they have to be dragged around with it. And that's what makes it so heavy. So I think what we have done is we, we use the soliton as a probe of this new form of superfluid and see that apparently there are lots of fluctuations in that gas that we would otherwise n never see. And, and that will have an impact on our understanding of superconductors, but also even neutron stars. And our experiments in the lab can provide new benchmarks for such theories. That's really fun. That was Martin Svierlein at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. In less than a second, a laser pulse can reveal whether a red blood cell is squashed, swollen or otherwise abnormally shaped. Researchers at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada extracted red blood cells from a healthy male and struck them with a laser beam. The cells emitted sound waves in response. The sound waves are too high a frequency for human ears to hear, but they can be picked up by an energy sensor. The team used the amplitudes and frequencies of the waves to work out the size and shape of the cells. The technique could one day be used to diagnose blood-related disorders like malaria and some types of anemia. Read more about the study in the Biophysical Journal. It's not just male humans that like to show off in front of their friends. Male crickets act more aggressively in fights and put on a flashier victory dance if other crickets are watching. Researchers at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada put pairs of male crickets, both wild and lab-reared, in an arena. Sometimes they added a third cricket that could watch and hear the fight but not join in. Wild fighting males became more aggressive when they knew they had a spectator and those that won fights performed flamboyant body jerks and chirps. This suggests that fighting behaviour in invertebrates is shaped by social experience, just as it is in vertebrates. Find that paper in Biology Letters. You're listening to The Nature Podcast. Next, Ewan Calloway goes back to university. I thought I knew a thing or two about higher education. I've sat through hundreds of lectures in several universities. These days, though, leading institutions like Harvard, MIT, and Stanford are pumping millions of dollars into a new form of education. It's called a MOOC, spelled M-O-O-C. A massive open online course is a course taught online, not to just a few people, but to tens of thousands of people. That's Sanjay Sarma, head of digital learning at MIT. The numbers range from a few thousand to, uh, in some cases, more than 150,000 people. And what makes this possible and why this is different from regular online learning as the sort that might occur with, say, open universities courses, is the sheer scale. I've decided to see for myself and enroll in a MOOC. There were dozens of courses to pick from, such as the ancient Greek hero, medical statistics, and even the history of rock music. I opted for medical neuroscience taught by Leonard White at Duke University. I sometimes write about neuroscience for nature, but I've never taken a single class. So I hope the MOOC can help me learn some brain basics. I load the first video lecture and press play. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the new Trent Seaman Center for Health Education at Duke University School of Medicine. 
This is a bit of an insider's look at the human brain. We are in the specimen prep room. As you can see behind me, we have uh, quite a number of human brain specimens. I'm just pulling one out and give you a chance to uh, see up close and personal, as it were, some of the parts of the brain that especially intrigue me. All the lectures are short videos like this, and the course also includes readings, online discussions with other students, and quizzes and exams. It's hard, tougher than many of my university courses. So if we can draw an imaginary line from that parietal occipital sulcus down to a notch formed by the way the dura tends to restrict the development of the inferior surface of the occipital lobe, we have a boundary that roughly divides the occipital lobe from the parietal lobe. But I'm one of more than 45,000 people to enroll in medical neuroscience, and I've contributed to the 1.3 million downloads of its short lectures. Sanjay Sarma says white strategy is better than putting hour-long lectures on the internet. A good MOOC, the way it works is if you can tease these concepts apart and present them in briefer periods, but then link them together to tell the whole story. That's what makes a good MOOC. Sarma is working on developing his own MOOC on manufacturing. Like my neuroscience instructor, Sarma sees his course as a complement to his lectures on topics such as welding, not as a replacement. When uh, a student at MIT attends classes, two things happen. One, of course, is the regular instructions, the professor lecturing. But then there's discussions. There are the hallway conversations. There are labs, there are serendipitous discoveries, there are students talking to each other, there are activities, clubs, teams. So there's a lot of magic that happens on campus. What MOOCs aim to do is take one element of the university experience, which is the instruction, and put that online so that students can spend more time on campus benefiting from the magic. Or if they can't get to campus at all, they still get a little of the magic bestowed by elite instructors. But not everyone is sold on MOOCs. Jonathan Osborne, a science education researcher at Stanford University, worries that students miss out on the experience of ordinary classrooms. You need a kind of social environment where people are coming together and meeting at some stage or other. And a MOOC with just some kind of discussion board isn't quite the same thing. You know, if you look at the history of technology in education, it's always been oversold. And I think there is clearly a development here in terms of enabling access to a very large audience of quality materials. But that's not going to be a universal panacea or solution to the problems of providing uh, education. MOOCs also present an opportunity for science lecturers, freeing them up to spend more time with hands-on teaching and research. They also give students wider access to advanced instruction, Sarma says. Recently, I was on the PhD committee of a student at um, ETH Zurich. He was uh, doing some wonderful research, but he needed to learn a topic called machine learning. And what he did was he went and took the course online from Stanford professors, and he learned a lot from it, so much so that he was able to incorporate it into his research, and he presented a very nice thesis recently. And so my view is that MOOCs or online learning will greatly benefit researchers in getting their job done. My own neuroscience education is going slower than I expected, so I phoned Professor White to ask his advice. This course is aimed to help us understand how to approach medical school of the future. In fact, my 
goal was to provide a course that mirrored in rigor and in content the course that I provide in our School of Medicine for post-baccalaureate students that are earning a medical degree. And this course by far is asking more time of the learner than any other course in the catalog. So you're telling me I have picked the absolute hardest MOOC I could have possibly chosen. I would say no question you chose the course that demands more of the learner than any other course in the catalog, by a good margin, actually. White's already working on a second edition of his neuroscience course, and I may enroll, but I'm tempted by others, too. I've already signed up for a class on science and cooking starting next term out of Harvard. My mealtimes may never be the same again. Neither, say MOOC fans, will higher education. Boy, something just clicked inside me when I first learned about the MOOCs. It struck me as being the tsunami that many of us anticipated was coming in higher education, and it just seemed like this was an important movement that really required serious exploration. That was Leonard White at Duke University, and before him, Sanjay Sarma and John Osborne. You can find comment pieces, features and loads more on MOOCs by Sanjay Sarma and others in the Digital Education Special at Nature.com. The Medical Neuroscience course is at www.coursera.org. Finally this week, it's news time. Richard Van Norden is here. We're going to space for our first two stories, in fact, and the first is an update on NASA's plans to lasso an asteroid. In April, Barack Obama proposed that NASA grab an asteroid and tow it near the moon for astronauts to visit. And there was a workshop on 9th of July in Washington, D.C., in which we found out just how hard this plan is going to be to pull off. So they're visiting it kind of for practice, basically, manned missions into space. What's so difficult about um, towing, choosing your asteroid and then towing it near the moon? Well, the problem is really choosing the right asteroid, which maybe sounds a bit counterintuitive, since if you think about this mission, a capture craft would come out, grapple with an asteroid that's about 10 metres across, weighing about 400 tonnes, same as the International Space Station. Then they'd get a rip-resistant bag, which they'd put around the asteroid, and then they'd tow it to the moon, and then they'd have to develop all of these technologies for astronauts to visit the asteroid, as you say, for practice, potentially for longer space missions. But the problem here is finding the right space rock in the first place. We've looked at more than 10,000 near-Earth asteroids, and only 370 of them are small enough to capture. That's about 10 metres across. And of those 370, only 14 of them have a suitable orbit, and just four of them have been studied well enough for us to know about their surface texture and how fast they spin. We want them to be spinning more slowly than two revolutions per minute so the spacecraft systems aren't threatened. Now, if NASA picks up the pace at which it looks across the sky, we should find at least 15 more 10-metre targets over the next few years. And Barack Obama wants this spacecraft launched for 2017, which would allow it to drag the asteroid near the moon by 2021. So that's not very much time to find the right rock. But if Barack says, find me a rock, got to go and find him a rock. Well, at the moment, we're not sure this mission is actually going to be funded. So NASA said it would cost between $1 and $2.6 billion. And Congress has been locked in a battle with the administration over the goals of, of NASA. And one bill uh, proposed by Congressional Subcommittee on Space in the House of Representatives would cancel all funding for this asteroid initiative, you know, which would be a pity. Oh, well, well there's, a, there's a more of a success story from space too this week in the section. And this has to do with an EU satellite launch, a new type of satellite, or at least a new form of communication. On 25th of July, uh, European Space Agency is going to launch AlphaSat, and it will be the first satellite to relay 
large amounts of data to Earth from other satellites uh, from lasers, so using beams of light to send uh, data between satellites and down to Earth. Usually satellites use, what, radio waves? Exactly, so they use radio waves. And the problem with radio waves is that you can get hundreds of megabits of information per second, but lasers can reach gigabits per second. And unlike the very crowded radio wave spectrum, optical wavelengths are certainly underused uh, and underregulated. AlphaSat uh, could uh, be essentially the first of a sort of bigger set of pipes for a sort of flood of space information, perhaps petabytes of data every year. Is this the first of many, then, laser communication satellites? Well, on 5th of September, NASA's going to have uh, its mission, the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, which acronyms to LADY. It's going to beam video and scientific data from the moon. And taking advantage again of its laser communication system, it has a bandwidth more than six times what's possible with radio from the moon, so it can be able to broadcast high-definition television quality video. The only problem is that when it's cloudy, the, the laser light will actually be blocked, and then the spacecraft will have to rely on a backup radio link. But nonetheless, you know, with NASA's going up as well, perhaps it won't be long before we trap this pet asteroid of ours and then we can say hello to it with our laser communication. And now, for the last story of the week, back down to Earth with a bump and a disease among cattle that has actually been eradicated is in the news again. Rinderpest, which is a deadly cattle disease, was announced eradicated in 2011, in fact 10 years after the last case had been seen in Kenya. And it was only the second disease to ever be uh, wiped off the face of the earth after smallpox in the 1980s. But it's not quite eradicated because there are small vials of Rinderpest virus still in 44 laboratories in 35 countries around the world. And on 10th of July, uh, a moratorium that was put on research into Rinderpest, um, so as to avoid any accidental release, was lifted. And now scientists can start to look at researching Rinderpest in order to reduce the number of labs holding samples of the virus. Why would researching it enable you to decrease the amount of labs that hold it? Well, that all comes down to why the labs are holding it. Many of them are holding uh, weakened live strains of the virus, which they want to use as vaccines. But the first um, project to be approved is the idea that vaccines developed against a closely related virus called ovine rinderpest might also protect cattle against rinderpest. And if that turned out to be true, you could immediately destroy much of these live attenuated vaccine strains in many of these labs. At the moment, many countries don't want to give up their vaccine stocks in case Rinderpest should reappear and threaten their cattle, and they don't want to be dependent on the willingness of everybody else to quickly provide them with the vaccines they need. But of course, if this works, this provides a very elegant way around these political problems. You don't need to hold on to the Rinderpest vaccine any longer. Would the general principle be eventually to completely eradicate all of these stocks? Well, the idea eventually is that you centralise the stocks of your vaccines in a few very high containment repositories in regions at very high risk of disease. So you might imagine one in Africa, one or two in Asia, one in Europe. You're probably always going to need some stocks of virus for study. So just in case Rinderpest should come back again. But hopefully uh, research will manage to reduce the number of labs holding this virus and will also... Um, make sure that we know how to destroy the virus or ship it to other centres in a way that doesn't risk its release. So again, uh, we're working on protocols for um, holding the virus and shipping it. As always, thank you to Richard Van Norden. Remember, you can read all those stories and more at nature.com news. That's it for this week. Join us again next time when we'll be battling the superbugs. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.